Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Dr. Holly Geyer, an addiction medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. She knows we are in a drug crisis, that opioid overdose is now the leading cause of death in adults 18 to 45. Dr. Geyer is also a mom of two young girls, and she, like all moms, wants these young girls to grow up safely and live a good life. So she's written a book we can all access and use and work with for a healthier tomorrow. Dr. Holly Geyer, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Now, this is really great that we're connecting. It's a really, really tough subject nationally. But, you know, when I look around where I live and work in the Seattle area, the evidence of opioid abuse, drug abuse in general, but I know a lot of it tends toward the opioids. I see it. It's very much in our face. And you're here with Mayo Clinic doing what you can to do the research and find us the solutions. And in fact, there is this new book, Ending the Crisis, Mayo Clinic's Guide to Opioid Addiction and Safe Opioid Use. So obviously there's help and I hope that each of us can be part of that solution. Thank you, Kate. You know, that's why we wrote this book. For so long, we've really put kind of a middleman in between us and the crisis as everyday consumers. You know, we've expected the government to regulate us out of the opioid crisis and prescribers to prescribe us out, for our physicians to counsel us out or drug treatment programs to rehab us out. And numbers that looked bad a few years ago look worse now. So this book is about empowering everyday people, right? Moms, dads, brothers, sisters to take charge of their own health care and to prevent problems within their own household or manage them if they come up. So that's great. That's our real major goal. To see how dire it is, and I was saying how I, I see it around me here in the city, the statistics are just mind-boggling that there's just so much uh, death. I mean, in the course of our half-hour conversation, essentially four people will have died from an overdose. Oh, isn't it heartbreaking? And, you know, we, we think back to probably that mid-2010 time frame, you know, 2016, 2018, when we saw state regulations change across the nation, prescribing guidelines come out, federal and regulatory changes, and despite all of these grandiose efforts, what we actually saw was an increase in opioid overdose deaths. In 2020, there was a 30% increase. In 2021, another 15% increase. Who knows what 2022 is going to show, but absolutely the wrong trends and a scary environment to live in. And what we're seeing is from actual legitimate legal drug overdose, or are these synthetics that are you know, being manufactured illicitly? You know, it, it really um, requires to understand that answer to that question that we go back you know, up until probably 2012 or so, the vast majority of people that were becoming addicted to opioids were those that were receiving legitimate prescriptions or prescriptions at least from a provider. But as we started tapering off the number of opioids that we wrote in the healthcare industry, we saw people turn to illicit sources because they were already addicted. And so that 2012 to 2014 timeframe, it was heroin. And then since then, it's been exactly what you mentioned, these synthetic opioids or opioids um, like fentanyl and many of the other analogs. 
Um, those drugs are derived from the streets. Um, they are made in clandestine labs and under no pharmaceutical industry support or supervision. Who knows what you're getting in these compounds? There was a study a couple years ago that showed that 42% of all tested fentanyl uh, doses in a single dose would have enough to kill a person. So without regulation or proper oversight, um, these are deadly drugs and um, really no legitimate medical uh, use outside of the healthcare setting. And that is so mind-boggling to me. And there are personal stories that are shared in the book that will help us to perhaps gain some some sense of understanding. But it still really is so overwhelming and perplexing to me that that we are in this crisis that certainly started with overprescription. But but why? There's a, a certain kind of what mindset that leads to this? You know, there really is. And I don't think we could point the fingers at any one of us. I think we need to point it at all of us, Kate. There's really an American mentality um, that pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality that um, gives us the notion there's a pill for that problem, right? And regardless of where the source of opioids is coming from, whether it's a legitimate prescription or something off the street, we see Americans on a daily basis turn to a drug to fix life's problems. That's where we need to start having the difficult conversations. And our book goes through that in detail. Um, I think it's so key that when people are struggling with pain-related issues, that um, they are empowered with the knowledge to know what kind of questions to ask their providers before they get into problems with opioids. You know, is this the right medicine for me? Should I be pairing it with other agents? How do I screen or am I appropriate to even receive this drug given my risk factors and my family history? What other, uh, you know, storage things should I be thinking about and when and how do I get rid of the drug? The same thing goes for management of opioid-related complications like addiction. How do friends and family intervene on those problems? What do you look for in the household or, or what are signs of addiction early and late stages? How do you find a treatment program and which ones are valid? Um, what kind of things can you do to make sure you're supporting someone through addiction? And what are the standard treatment approaches? All of this is baseline knowledge that I believe clinicians are, are typically privileged to have that really belong in the hands of the end user, the person likely to experience problems, and that's the average American. So again, the point of this book is really to empower them with the information they need if they along anywhere in their course of healthcare delivery to receive an opioid or a family member does to know how to use it safely and deal with their problems. And to perhaps find some some alternatives or use an opioid if it's needed because of pain management, but make sure that it's very short term because there's something that goes on in the brain when we when we do take um, a pain medication overly long, right? You're absolutely right. You know there are many roads that lead to addiction, and there are many risk factors. Same thing goes for an overdose. Um, we know that the purpose of taking an opioid is really to help manage pain, and typically in the acute phase. Um, pain serves a purpose in our body. We have to remember that in our country. You know, we like, like I mentioned, to, to take a pill for something to allow us to accomplish the things that we really want to do. And in the acute phase setting, you know, after an injury or procedure, that pain is there to warn our body to slow down, to take it slow, to not mow the lawn two days after a appendix is removed, right? right. <laughs> now, the problem is when we push through that and we take a pill that numbs everything away, the body starts to rewire, including the brain. And over time, this can develop actually into chronic pain. 
And a chronic pain disorder is a disease in, in itself with no medical purpose. Um, you know, opioids overwhelmingly don't help people with chronic pain. And there was a study just a couple of years ago that showed that 79% of Americans believe the purpose of opioids is actually to manage chronic pain. Couldn't be more of the opposite. So really having that understanding to take it slow, to use time to heal um, so that your body is able to rebound and hopefully go back to nothing for pain management um, as opposed to becoming dependent on something down the road. Yes, I can see how it is our American mentality of wanting that uh, fast forward mode or quick fix or the microwave, you know, quick quick right. meals, that kind of thing that we we want it now, not having the patience to to live through something. Exactly. You're, you're right on. In fact, 80% of the world's opioids are used by Americans. We're less than 5% of the world's population. So somehow 80% of the world has figured out that there are alternatives, and I'm sure that includes rest and healing. Um, you know, fixing that as our understanding will help these conversations with our providers go easier as well. That is astounding that that number is is what yeah. it is. We, we certainly... I've heard it in terms of resources that we have the small population and use the hugest number of resources. And here it is with the drugs as well. Absolutely. And Kate, it's important to acknowledge, you know, opioids when used in the right patient for the right indication for the right length of period at the right dose are one of medicine's greatest marvels. They mm. absolutely serve a purpose in our world. And I, I think it's key that people understand that although there are risk factors for overdose and for addiction, um, it, it's not every person that this is going to happen to. And when used wisely and safely, the odds of them happening are actually quite low. But I've treated little ladies riddled with cancer that are scared to death to take an opioid for extremely legitimate purposes because they're scared of dying with addiction. Mm. And we need to change the mentality on the other way, right? Understand when they're right and when they're wrong. And this is not information I, as a physician, should be privileged to have. It belongs in our patients' hands. Yes. Uh, so we just need to get this education, this awareness, this out into the public. Uh, the 80% figure comes up again, and that was the one I was thinking of, that 80% of 911 calls are for people under the age of 20 involving opioids. Isn't that a scary number? You know, people come to opioids from many different roads, and we've seen these roads evolve. Um, you, you don't need a physician anymore to give you an opioid prescription because they're so easily accessible off the streets these days. And many states are seeing that transition. You know, back in 2012, studies were showing that about 90% of people that were going to heroin had started with a prescription medication. Here in the state of Arizona, we've seen that number now down to about the 30-ish percent range, which means 70-ish percent of people are going straight to the illicit opioids off the street, having never touched a prescription. So why are they doing it, Kate? Yeah. Um, they're doing it because there's mental health crises. Opioids help with mental health problems on a very transient basis before they become the problem themselves. Same thing goes for experimentation in our teenagers, right, in our young adults. It's intriguing, it's interesting, and quite frankly, they're even starting with softer drugs that might be laced with fentanyl, so cannabis, things like that. 
Um, and then, of course, there's that pain population where we as prescribers didn't do our job. We overprescribed opioids. We didn't monitor for side effects. Now people are addicted to those and look for other sources when we don't offer them our drugs. All of these roads kind of lead to the same issues, the need for treatment, the need for rehabilitation of some degree, and the need for family and friends support as they go through this pretty harrowing process for many. And you know, Dr. Geyer, it feels like the cow is so far out of the barn that it's a herd out there and we can't do anything to manage it. It, I I feel so helpless sometimes thinking of, you know, how do we begin? And I know it just takes one step and we have to do one person at a time. But how do you see us really getting to the solution and turning this ship around? Um, I believe it's empowerment. I really do. And I say that because nothing else is working, Kate. Nothing else is working. We've got treatments out there from left to right across the spectrum. And quite frankly, many of these treatments, if they were accessible to those struggling with addiction, would have tremendous results. But at the end of the day, until we can get people to those treatments and until we can prevent people from experimenting or getting on this wrong road to begin with, um, this will continue to be a statistic problem that ravages America. And so I believe wholeheartedly um, one of the first steps is to empower every Americans with baseline knowledge in their household. I, I would imagine no one in our audience today woke up, walked up to their hot stove and put their hand on it. <laughs> and there's a reason, right? <laughs> we learned at a very young age that hot stove equals badness. <laughs> there's going to be consequences. Why not put that baseline knowledge about the issues with opioids in every American household, whether or not they ever encounter that drug along the continuum of their own care or of the family members? They can impart this wisdom and this information to the next person and the next person. Really, when we're equipped with knowing how to use them safely and not dependent on a third party to tell us yes or no, that's how we're going to start fixing this. Same thing goes for staging these interventions and quite frankly, not enabling those that are struggling with opioid addiction problems, but putting them in the line to get the treatments they need. And we talk in the book how to do that. This is where we start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. I know we're not there yet, Kate, but I, I believe there's tangible solutions if we start walking towards them. And sometimes it feels as though they're just... Uh, is not enough treatment available, like beds or rooms or uh, centers, staffing as well. That It feels like that also is in crisis mode and, and is inhibiting us to be able to get to the solution. You are not wrong there. Um, you know, historically, since uh, the early 2000s, one of the best treatment approaches out there called buprenorphine which could be prescribed by a clinician from an office setting was only being prescribed by less than 5% of eligible physicians. And quite frankly, of those 5% of physicians that even had the licensure to do so, only a micro fraction were offering it. So we did not do a good job in the clinical community making the drugs that will help reduce uh, mortality rate by upwards of 70% accessible to our patients. And then, of course, there's all the other components that go into treatment, not just the medicines, but the psychosocial support, the family counseling, all these other elements. Um, those are not as accessible as we would like from a treatment program standpoint. We've got insurance industry problems, which we go through in the book and help patients and families navigate that. We've got problems with state laws about how many times someone can and can't be treated for addiction. 
um, all these things that really place barriers. This is why it's so key that now the DEA-X waiver, which restricted physicians from offering these medicines, was lifted this last month. I think this is going to open the floodgates of physicians now being able to offer these treatments in a legitimate setting. And please, please, to our audience, have conversations with your family practitioner about how to get access if you have concerns of addiction to opioids. Um, They're going to be a whole lot more accessible starting this year, I think. Well, th- that certainly feels like a, a ray of hope coming our way, uh, having that happen. Uh, and and certainly, and it, it, it is certainly one person at a time, We, it, it, which will hopefully just expand and grow. And I, I like that we start in the home with teaching, just like, you know, you don't put your hand on the stove. You're not going to go looking for these drugs, not trusting anyone, um, looking for excitement. I guess peer pressure, too, would be involved there. So, again, I guess empowering our kids to to feel strong enough to say no. Yeah, and honestly, Kate, educate, educate, educate. I live in the state of Arizona where 50% of the United States fentanyl is trafficked through um, this year, I went trick-or-treating with naloxone, the opioid rescue medication, in my back pocket when I went out with my three little girls. When we live in a day and age where we feel we might have to do CPR and resuscitate our children on the sidewalk during Halloween trick-or-treating, we live in a bad world. And that's what I would tell parents. This stuff is lacing a whole lot more substances than we think. I just had a conversation with a friend yesterday who lost his son to an opioid overdose when his son thought he was smoking cannabis. That was just a couple months ago. So please be aware that these substances are now being put on other common drugs of abuse and even non-drugs. We're seeing this on prescription or uh, non-prescription weight loss supplements that are being purchased over the Internet. Um, You know, be be aware that uh, these are highly addictive chemicals with the potential for overdose and they're being laced on substances that are probably uh, more common to take than we think. Oh, that that is mind-boggling. To go beneath the surface of that with the weight loss supplements or someone with cannabis that's laced with the fentanyl, what's what's going on? What is the mentality of the people that are are pushing that or perpetrating that? Great question. Um, There is no quality control in illicit substances. And all drugs of abuse, all drugs um, in, in, you know, with the potential for abuse lead to a dopamine surge in the brain. Um, dopamine is our happy chemical. We create endogenous or, or compounds in our own body all day long that allow for dopamine to go up when we do something that brings pressure, um, hugging our kids or eating ice cream. Drugs of abuse lead to much, much higher levels of dopamine surges, and that's what makes them addictive. The problem is lightweight drugs, shall we call them, like cannabis, when they're laced with fentanyl, give a much higher dopamine surge. And so people start seeking fentanyl after they use something they think is just cannabis. Cannabis, when it's just straight out itself, isn't going to provide that same high. And so someone's going to turn to fentanyl. The problem is if you're one of those statistics and you get a fentanyl uh, amount or dose or degree of clarity that's um, at a lethal level, Uh, you don't make it to your next product to use. And I had an interesting conversation from someone who worked with the DEA a couple weeks ago who said what we're seeing over and over is that the drug cartels are now targeting the highest potency drug they can get. 
because they know that for the fraction that won't overdose and die, those that do use the drug ultimately become more and more dependent on it, and they recruit others to do it too. So they're, they're okay with the fallout of the mortality out there um, at the expense of ensuring they've got a very addicted population. Oh, we are dealing with so much. So it comes back to us, each individual, to really have this knowledge, information, find our joy in life as opposed to the substance that's going to give us this artificial high and and, and really ultimately along the way, if not instantly kill us, is, is going to kill us in the short term. It's so true. And, you know, Kate, we don't know where these trends are heading. Um, they have been worse every year. You know, what, when do we stop having a next generation? And what are we willing to do to get it back? Mm-hmm. Um, these are the big questions. These are the ones we ask our readers in that book. Because if we're not empowered today, not tomorrow, today, um, this crisis is only going to continue to devolve. And so we ask our readers to really take this book and use it as a compendium guide. We don't expect everyone to pick it up and read it from beginning to end. I think we're going to see an audience that has true questions that can find those answers very quickly in whatever chapter addresses that content. And so I I want people to know that there is hope. And we filled this book with stories of real-life people who are living this, um, either the hell and the ravages of addiction all the way to the excitement and euphoria of actually going through treatment and doing well. Um, we, we fill it with people who've struggled with chronic pain and have found light at the end of the tunnel and to those who've lost those who, who couldn't handle the chronic pain and chose to take their lives instead. Um, we, we've got so many crises with from pain to addiction. Um, we want people to know that there are answers and um, we, we just need to take the next step for them. Yes. So this book, yes, definitely such an important education a great tool ending the crisis we can act we can find it through any of our favorite book sources correct that is correct yes and also uh, more details and you know to to find out more information also to go to the mayo clinic website and if you would share that with us yeah so mayoclinic.org will have a lot of information on many of the topics we address in the book We've also developed an opioid resource center. So if someone were to type in opioid resource center, Mayo Clinic on their web browser, they'll be taken to a site that talks through a whole lot of this, a lot more in depth, shares stories, and also has external resources for reference and good information. So that is a very key site to bookmark, I think, because obviously, from the context of our conversation, using that number of 80% of populations in this country uh, connected to addiction, we need to really learn and be aware and see where, you know, we might be part of the solution, whether we know someone, maybe it's us ourselves that's, that's hooked here, but this is going to be our guide, right? Oh, Kate, in 2015, one out of every three American adults had an opioid prescription that year. <laughs> this is going to be applicable to a whole lot of people. So I, I hope they find it a good resource. That, too, is these numbers are so mind boggling that, uh, again, we're, we're looking to to these 
synthetic sus- substances, really, uh, even I guess if they're, they come from a natural source, it's still synthetic in terms of our feeling empowered by our own selves for the majority of the time with some guidance, uh, perhaps from, uh, from a counselor or a physician. Absolutely. You know, there is healing that takes place. And when we put the right treatments um, together, I, I think people will find that freedom they're looking for. We've got good treatments. They're about to be more accessible for addiction. And keep in mind, having a balanced lifestyle is one of the best things that we can do for ourselves from a prevention and a treatment standpoint. So, you know, look, look for ways to find happiness and excitement and, you know, a, a sense of fulfillment in everyday activities because life is short. Don't make it shorter with our mistakes out there already circulating. Yes, and the pain that we inflict on ourselves during the course of, of going through addiction and all the challenges, but if a person loses their life and how it affects their circle, the family, the friends, and the devastating loss that exists. Okay. It's, uh, I'll tell you, drugs are an equal opportunity destroyer. They will go after every part of your life, every domain of it. I was heartbroken to have a mom share just a heartbreaking story of how her son was in the ravages of addiction. And I'll never forget how she looked me in the eyes and she said, Dr. Geyer, I wish my son were dead. Mm. I was taken back and I said, "What, what do you mean? And she said, because I know only one of us would be suffering then. And that's what's happening, Kate. It, it destroys every loved one, every family member. And we share some of those stories in the books of, you know, those primary caregivers or a mom who watches her son go through the cycle of addiction and overdoses and relapse and how it tears her and her family apart. This is an empowering book. And we've got four or five chapters that are dedicated to those loved ones that are suffering right along with the person that's addicted to help get the treatment they need and to help them as caregivers and loved ones with the support they personally need to survive this crisis. We don't need two fatalities if we're going to go through an overdose, right? Um, We can fix this by getting people the treatment they need and uh, stand up to the plate as a family, take the, the control they need and address the problem head on. Yes. And that's really what we are all needing. We need to be see these really shocking statistics, but know that all hope is not lost yet. We can, each of us, it's a personal decision. Each of us needs to take that step and become more informed and do whatever we can to be part of the solution. And so much of that is changing the mentality about the stigma. You know, we see it as a moral failure so often. Um, to be struggling with addiction. And the reality is that this is a brain problem. What we talk about in the book is the biology of addiction and how it reshapes the brain in the same way that diabetes reshapes the blood vessels, the nerves, and the chemical conduits through which much of our bodily functions um, run. Once we start seeing this as a disease, I think we'll be so much more open to address it. And that's what we want to tell friends and family. Oftentimes it's not addressed or it's hidden or it's enabled because we are personally ashamed that we're, you know, we've got a loved one in the household who's dealing with it. Um, This is about being empowered and frontal to stand up and say, listen, here's what I'm seeing. Here's what we need to do next. Here's who we're going to talk to. Here's how we handle it. And by the way, we love you, and we're going to help support you through this because you're struggling with a medical issue. 
And of course, we know that there's social issues, psychological issues, and all these other things that are affected by this medical disorder. Those need to be addressed too, but let's support people, not stigmatize them through it. Yes. And to know that sometimes a one-time treatment, going through treatment, may not be the, the solution, that some people may need to go through a repeat of the process, right? Expect relapses to be the norm. You know, it's, it's unfortunate that um, we have this kind of exception of the whole addiction field as a one-time problem, and then it's dealt with and it's fixed. And those that experience a relapse often get the um, false understanding or false narrative that we offer them that, well, you've screwed it up and odds are you're never going to be fixed. You know, you're going to die at some point. (laughs) The reality is that when we recognize it as a relapsing disorder, much like we see in diabetes, and we try and keep it under control, the better we'll do with making sure that there's relapse action plans, things in place to help support that person through it. Life has crises. And they've been doing brain studies that show that many of the rewiring problems that we see in addiction stay there for very long periods. There is some degree of brain healing, but there is some degree of easy relapse. And so let's not put people in circumstances where they're likely to relapse, such as giving opioids inappropriately to someone with a history of addiction. Mm. Same thing goes that if they have a relapse, making sure that they've got all the support systems necessary to counsel them through it and to restart medications if appropriate in those circumstances. Oh, that sounds really great. And to really put all of this together and make it part of our life, getting a copy of this book, Ending the Crisis Mayo Clinic's Guide to Opioid Addiction and Safe Opioid Use, is really going to be the best thing that we can do for ourselves and really be part of turning this around and helping those in need, which we know is a huge part of our population. We hope so, Kate. Um, I am privileged to have this information. Our audience should be too. If I keep it to myself, I've done no one a favor in my career. So this is stuff that belongs in our society, not within the medical industry. I hope people find it useful. Kate, I didn't write this book as an addiction medicine specialist. I wrote it as a mom. And that is so powerful. That's what is going to give us the, the drive, I think, to move forward and really embrace this book and the information and move forward. Again, thank you, Dr. Geyer. Oh, privileged to be with you, Kate. That brings us to the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Dr. Holly Geyer and Sunday Morning Magazine with Joe Yogurst. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, kated at war1069.com, and I will get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, find the podcast on our Warm 1069 webpage. Just click on the podcast tab, then either of the show names, and then look for the guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of good and safe health to have great adventures. Have a week of the same, and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9. Good morning.